Hi, welcome to That Cancer Conversation, the new podcast from Cancer Research UK. Imagine that you have a headache. Now, what do you do? Maybe you're like me and you're someone that quickly reaches for aspirin. Take a pill, drink some water, feel a bit better. Once the headache's gone and you have time to think, you start asking questions. Like, where did that aspirin come from? The answer, of course, being the shops. But before that, like way before the manufacturers, way before even the scientists, where did that aspirin come from? The answer? The cells of a willow tree. I know it sounds strange, but evidence shows that ancient Greeks and Chinese knew that the bark of willow trees could reduce fevers. Indigenous Americans knew that they could ease pain by drinking a tea made from it. For over 2,000 years, all the way back to ancient Sumer, people have known that willow trees held curative properties. In the 19th century, Scientists isolated compounds from willow trees, hoping to distill its potent curative properties into a more modern medicine. Now, one of these compounds was known as salicin, and by the end of the century, it had been used to create one of the most popular medicines of today, acetyl salicylic acid, or more commonly, aspirin. Now, if something as important as aspirin came from a plant, well, what else might there be? Could plant repositories, like here at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in London, with its millions of plants and seeds, hold the key to discovering the treatments of tomorrow? Dr. Melanie Howes, researcher in phytochemistry and pharmacognancy here at Kew, certainly think so. She and her lab use chemical techniques to try and analyse plants to get an understanding of the science behind their use as medicines to help us find the drugs of tomorrow. People have been using um, plants as medicines um, or exploring their properties um, for thousands of years and up until the end of the 18th century people were still using plants in the form of herbal medicines. So these often consisted of either plant material or plant extracts um, that contained many different chemicals, the mixture of different chemicals that can occur in plant species. But in the early 19th century, um, the analgesic morphine was first isolated from the opium poppy. And this actually led to a whole new era of discovering medicines from plants, which involved isolating a single active chemical um, from the plant rather than using the mixture as people had done uh, before this. And this actually completely revolutionised how people would use plants as sources of medicines and actually gave us the concept of that single active ingredient that we are familiar with uh, pharmaceutical drugs today. So like Melanie said, this idea was completely revolutionary. In the following years, some of the most well-known drugs of today were derived. Not content with just giving us morphine, the opium poppy gave us the drug codeine. From the cinchona tree, the anti-malarial compound quinine was discovered. Even the coca plant left its mark, with the chemical structure of cocaine inspiring the design of some anaesthetics. 
So many important pharmaceuticals have been taken from plants to treat diseases, ranging from malaria and dementia to multiple sclerosis and cancer. One notable anti-cancer drug is paclitaxel, which is a chemotherapy drug first isolated in 1971. It's used today and works by stopping cancer cells from separating into two new cells, stopping their growth, but it hasn't always been smooth sailing for this drug. So this anti-cancer drug was originally um, extracted from the bark of the Pacific yew tree. However, many thousands of trees needed to be killed um, in order to source enough of the drug um, for clinical use. So this um, threatened the species. And in fact, the populations of Pacific yew trees have actually declined by around 30%. Um, in the last three generations. So this clearly wasn't uh, a sustainable um, solution, so an alternative had to be found. And especially because we know that um, the chemical structure of paclitaxel is so complex that it cannot be synthesized from scratch in the laboratory on a practical scale. So scientists then turned to a closely related species. So they um, studied the chemistry of the common yew tree. And they actually found that the leaves contained chemicals that were very similar to paclitaxel. So it was a much more sustainable solution to um, harvest the leaves and then extract these chemicals, which could then be converted in the laboratory into not only paclitaxel uh, to increase supplies, but also into other anti-cancer drugs such as docetaxel. So this is actually uh, a good example showing that knowledge of uh, plant taxonomy, how plants are related to each other, and also plant chemistry can also lead us to finding more sustainable ways to source medicines from nature. There have been so many different drugs, including anti-cancer ones, that have been derived from the natural world. But have we discovered all that we can? Melanie doesn't think so, and her team at Kew find the drugs of tomorrow from the plants of today. But is it just as simple as pointing at one of the several million plant specimens at Kew Gardens and testing it? Well, not exactly. Well, there are a number of different ways we can approach selecting plants to study for their uh, medicinal potential. We could just collect many different plant species at random and then test them for a particular biological activity, hoping that at least one of them would have the, the required biological or um, potentially uh, medicinal effect. But we also um, can select plants um, in other different ways. Um, so one way is to select plants that have been used traditionally for a particular medicinal purpose. Um, and then we would study those plants to find out if there's any rational scientific basis to explain that uh, traditional use. And there's actually a really good um, example of a drug that was discovered in this way. So, that, so this is the study of ethnopharmacology. And... Um, there is a plant called Artemisia annua, which is also known as sweet wormwood. And this has been used in traditional Chinese medicine uh, for thousands of years, um, especially for fevers, which can be a symptom of malaria. And in the 1970s, um, scientific re research revealed that um, this particular plant contained a chemical called artemisinin, 
which was developed as an anti-malarial drug. And the scientist who was involved in this discovery and development, she was actually awarded uh, a Nobel Prize in Medicine um, for this achievement. Um, but at Kew, we're actually um, using another approach to select plants. And this is based on the knowledge that um, medicinal plants and those which are known to be sources of pharmaceutical drugs are not distributed randomly across the plant tree of life, but they tend to occur in clustered patterns. So this means um, if we can understand um, which plants are more closely related to each other, we can then focus on those clusters of plants of high medicinal interest. So this um, enhances our ability to predict which plant species might be uh, more likely to yield other medicinal compounds, but it can also help us predict uh, which species might be more sustainable sources of them too. So once they've discovered a plant that they think might be useful, where do they go from there? Because plants are mixtures of so many different compounds, from the ones involved in producing energy from sunlight to those responsible for controlling how the roots grow. So how do they find a chemical needle in a botanical haystack? Um, so the process then would be um, in the laboratory. So this is to understand which of the active constituents. So in the laboratory, the first step um, we would do would be to uh, usually prepare an extract of a plant. So this would typically involve placing plant material. So once we've selected our plants, placing the material into a suitable solvent. So this could be alcohol or water. Um, so it's essentially a little bit like um, making tea. So once we've extracted out um, the chemicals, we then discard that plant material. And this leaves us with an extract that can, can contain hundreds of different chemicals, um, potentially. In order for us to identify which are the active ones and what they are, we have to purify them. So chromatography is, is a laboratory method that enables us to separate out uh, mixtures of chemicals um, based on their chemical and physical properties. And we then use various analytical techniques to identify what they are. And we can test the original extract or the groups or fractions of chemicals um, through this process and the individual isolated chemicals uh, for their pharmacological activities. Melanie and her team are experts at this. But this is a long process and it's not always successful. Now, seeing as scientists have been isolating compounds from plants for over two centuries, surely by now we should have built up enough knowledge to be able to design new drugs in the lab without having to do all this work finding new interesting plants. But it seems that it's not as easy as that. I would say actually that um, plants are brilliant chemists. Um, they can produce a diverse array of highly complex chemicals. Um, and many of these plants will produce as a strategy for their own survival. So, for example, some plants might produce um, very potent or biologically active compounds to help deter um, predators and protect themselves. And so throughout history, um, humans have harnessed the properties of some of these chemicals to develop as pharmaceuticals. So I've, I've mentioned uh, a few examples uh, today. 
Um, but it's also important to understand that there are certain uh, plant chemicals that are so complex that even today they cannot be synthesized from scratch in the laboratory. So examples of these include the anti-cancer drugs, um, vincristine and vinblastine, which were first isolated from the Madagascar periwinkle plant. So we still uh, rely on the skills of plants as chemists uh, to source these drugs. So really it can't be emphasised uh, enough that plant chemicals can produce very diverse and very complex chemicals and without research into plant chemistry uh, we might not have some of the pharmaceutical drugs that we are using today. The fact that we still rely on plants like the Madagascar periwinkle plant to create drugs like vincristine as well as vinblastine, I mean that's really important. Between them, these drugs have been used to treat a wide variety of cancers, from childhood leukemia to breast, ovarian, lung and bladder cancers. So these are important drugs, both of them on the World Health Organization's model list of essential medicines and have been used to treat people across the globe for 60 years. The Madagascar periwinkle plant being an amazing chemist also comes at a cost. Around 500 kilograms of dried leaves are required to produce just one gram of vinblastine. You can see how that might be a problem sustainability-wise. There are drugs today which play huge roles in life-saving treatments, but over-harvesting plants could damage ecosystems and affect the indigenous communities who first supplied the knowledge of how to use them. To prevent this from happening, the United Nations set up the Convention on Biological Diversity. It's been ratified by 196 nations and aims to prevent any threats to biodiversity. So once scientists like Melanie have received plants, isolated the chemicals and tested them for potential anti-cancer properties, what comes next? Creating a drug. And no, it's not as simple as taking those plant extracts and putting them into a pill or injecting them into a patient. These drugs still have to be turned into something more usable, and we have someone who understands this sometimes lengthy process all too well. So I am Gavin Albert. I am the director of the Cancer Research UK Formulation Unit. Uh, and we have a role of taking any new chemical that can be used for the treatment of cancer and converting it into a product that can be safely administered to patients in clinical trial. Everybody will be aware of those types of products because they're either things like tablets or capsules or injections. Like Gavin said, they work to create drugs that end up in patients, but it's not super simple, right? So in Melanie's team, extract plant-based compounds and show that they have potential anti-cancer properties in the lab. What happens next? Do these compounds have to be treated in a special way compared to compounds designed synthetically, or is it all normal? And the, the simple answer to it is once we've gone through that process and isolated the material from the plant as a single chemical compound, then from the pharmaceutical perspective, in terms of making the, the drug, it gets treated as any other chemical compound. So we would then you know, look at the purity of the material, uh, what likely impurities are present based on um, the way that the material has been extracted from the plant. 
And then we would look at the stability of the material. So how long can we hang on to it before it degrades and what we need to do to, to convert it into a product. So once, yeah, once you've got that compound from our perspective, um, pharmaceutically, we would treat it the same as, you know, a synthetic compound that has had nothing to do with plants. While this is mostly true, plant-derived compounds do sometimes pose particularly difficult issues. For a lot of the plant-based medicines, because they're coming from plants, they are they don't dissolve in water. So plants don't dissolve in water, otherwise, yeah, the minute it rained, it would, nothing would be green. So they tend not to dissolve in water. So we have the problem that, yeah, we've got to somehow get it to dissolve in water so that we can then safely administer it to the patient uh, in the clinical trial or just patients in, in general. I mean, this that that is why the unit was established. Um, and we were established by what's Cancer Research Campaign uh, way back in the 1990s. Simply because at that point, um, the uh, oncologists were trying to get drugs into patients and they were having to try and dissolve the drug at the patient's bedside and that wasn't working. So there are a range of, of techniques that the chemists can do to modify the molecule to increase its solubility. Um, but if you do do that modification, you then have to make sure that once you put the the, the plant-based chemical, modified plant-based chemical into the patient, it reverts back to the original form that will give you the activity, um, which usually means that what you do is you make the molecule less stable, but more soluble, which from my perspective, uh, the solubility is good, but the lower stability is bad. So you then have the issue of, oh, I've made it soluble, but it's now no longer stable. So I need to sort the chemical stability so that I can make the product. And so what you've got to do is to achieve the balance that allows you to optimize the activity in the patient. Um, it is one of these things that um, is not simple to do, it's not easy, um, but usually if you apply the correct science to it, and that is not science, that's not cancer science, it's pharmaceutical science, you can solve those problems. So at this point, a potential anti-cancer compound could have been extracted and isolated. It would have then been tested in the lab and sent to scientists like Gavin to maybe modify it slightly to make sure it ticks all of the boxes to be used in clinical trials. So at this point, is it as simple as taking this compound and popping it into a pill press or something? From a pharmaceutical uh, point of view, we no longer really use pills. Uh, but that is it. So uh, the main type of, of administration route that we would use is, is intravenous injection, some form of injection into the patient, because that actually gets the material into the patient in a known dose in a controlled manner. Um, it's obviously that patients don't like that, and I can sympathize with that because you have to go to hospital, you're going to have to get yourself hooked up to some form of intravenous drip. So it's not pleasant experience. So the optimum route, if you can manage it, is to use oral administration. So as you would say, the pill press, it's not as absolute as intravenous administration. So uh, if you took the wrong type of tablet, it could easily come out the other end. Everybody knows where that is without being absorbed. 
So you have to then, when you're making those types of products, ensure that the drug will be absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract and you will get that activity in the patient that you desire. Although he's made it sound quite easy, the act of creating these drugs, it can sometimes be a really difficult process. So, I mean, just how long does something like this take? Uh, if you speak to anybody in this field, there are sort of, you know, the, the, the simple answer is it takes too long. Um, but the realistic answer is it takes as long as it takes because at the end of the process, you are going to administer that drug to a patient um, and some person is going to be the first person to get that drug uh, and therefore you have to do it safely. So you have to take account of all of the required safety procedures and obviously we have learned those safety procedures the hard way over a number of years. Um, so it can take a reasonable period of time. Uh, one, one, one illustration would be that the drugs might not be chemically stable, they might want to degrade. So one of the things that we need to do is to do a stability study on the product before we administer it to the patient. Um, and a stability study takes time. Now we have got ways of trying to speed it up by using higher temperatures, but I like to have at least three months data that tells me the drug is not, or the product is not going to degrade before the patient gets it. Otherwise, um, you know, I would be making a batch of material. It might only have a shelf life of three months. By the time I ship it to the clinical center, it's almost expired. So that takes a finite period of time. Lots of the other tests take finite periods of time. Uh, and usually what happens is we do these in a linear fashion. So we do one test followed by the next. What we like to do is that if we can get the drug <clears throat> as a compound, we would, fingers crossed, like to try and get it into the first patients in under two years. That's quite a stretch. But if everybody wants a sort of another um, example, which is very pertinent just now, if you look at the speed at which the COVID vaccines were developed, um, they realistically were developed in under a year. And that was achieved by not putting these tests in a linear fashion, one after the other, but taking a gamble and doing them all at once. And of course, if you take a gamble and do them all at once, then you really need a bigger amount of resource thrown at the problem from day one. Remember paclitaxel, the drug that Melanie told us about? It was isolated from the Pacific yew tree in 1971, but only approved for medical use in 1993. That's 22 years later. But this wasn't just down to the difficulties of optimizing drugs, because it's not enough that the plant that it might have been derived from might have been used for thousands of years, or that the compound itself has seen good anti-cancer properties in the lab. No, you have to find out how patients respond to it, and that means it has to go through a clinical trial where patients are given a treatment and assessed to see how effective it is and if there are any major side effects. As we've heard, a wide variety of plants can be used to source potential life-saving compounds, but a lot of them are plants that most people have never heard about. Professor Susan Short is a brain tumor specialist who works at the University of Leeds and St. James's Hospital. 
treating adult patients with primary brain tumors. She's been running a clinical trial to see if brain tumors can be treated with a little extra help from compounds derived from a plant that most people know about, cannabis. So um, Satamex is a, um, a mixture of two different um, cannabinoids, um, cannabidiol and THC. It's also got some other plant-based um, extract uh, in it. And it's manufactured as a spray. So uh, patients spray the um, Satamex into their mouth or into, around their mucous membranes in order to absorb the, uh, the drug. But Satavex isn't new. It's been used by people with multiple sclerosis to improve symptoms related to muscle stiffness. But in the first clinical trial of its kind, Susan's team looked at how patients with recurrent glioblastoma could be treated in a new way. They wanted to see if Sativex could be used in combination with chemotherapy. Um, and we tested that in a small group of patients who had aggressive primary brain tumours that had grown back after standard treatment. So they'd had surgery, and they'd had radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Um, and when the tumour showed evidence of growing back on scans, we treated them again with a combination of this Satavex cannabinoid medication and temozolomide, which is one of the conventional chemotherapy drugs that we use for this disease. Um, and that combination was based on some preclinical experimental work that suggested that this cannabinoid drug um, sensitized the glioma tumor cells to chemotherapy, particularly to chemotherapy with temozolomide. So we thought that that combination may be effective um, in these patients. As I said, it was a small study, and the main focus of the study was to make sure that the combination of the temozolomide chemotherapy and the Satinex, the cannabinoid, was safe to give to these patients. And we found that, in general, it was. There were some patients who got some side effects, uh, particularly um, tiredness. There were some patients who got dizziness and sickness, and some patients had to stop treatment because of side effects. But the majority of them uh, managed the treatment relatively well. And so that's what we've reported. Uh, we also looked at how these patients did, how long they survived after treatment. And although this was a very small patient group, some of the patients did seem to do better than we would expect. We did, for part of the study, we randomized patients to either receive the um, cannabinoid medication itself or a dummy, so a placebo equivalent. And it did look as though the patient who got the active drug did better. So it's really important to try to understand exactly how these treatments are working inside the body. As cannabinoid research is still relatively infant, do scientists well and truly understand the effects of them on the cancer cells, especially in this case when a chemotherapy drug is involved? So it looks as though the combination really pushes the cells into a sort of stress response and means that they're more likely to die after being exposed to the chemotherapy to the temozolomide. So the combination uh, works much better than either um, on their own. All of the details of how cannabinoids work, particularly in brain, it's quite a complex um, signaling system. But one thing that we do know is that the receptors, so the proteins on cell surfaces that respond to cannabinoids, 
are present in very high levels in a lot of glioma cells, so in a lot of these brain tumour cells. So that suggests that these tumour cells are specifically um, sensitive and prepared for um, signalling from these cannabinoids. Um, and that goes along with the fact that in preclinical experiments, so in experiments done in the lab, um, cell, glioma cells and glioma models um, seem to respond to cannabinoids in that you can uh, reduce the tumor cells growth uh, when you uh, when you treat cells or you treat um, animal models with these tumors with cannabinoids. So it's a fact that we know that the relevant receptors are there on these cells at high levels and that in the lab these cannabinoids do seem to act as anti-tumor growth drugs. So, so that's really what has made them interesting in this uh, in this context. So one of the big things that you hear online is that cannabis cures cancer or that organizations are intentionally suppressing the research. But Susan's work is looking at compounds derived from cannabis, but as she's quick to point out, Sativex and cannabis are not the same thing. There are lots and lots of different um, cannabinoids. Um, this Sativex medication is a combination of two main ones, but, you know, some other minor um, concentrations of other cannabinoids too. So you really, you, you can't, you can't describe it as cannabis. You can't, it's not, the, it's not the same thing. You know, cannabis itself anyway, you know, uh, is a very non-specific term. The issue around this study is all about, well, why can't I just go and buy, you know, some cannabis oil or, you know, buy a cannabinoid and take that and shouldn't I be doing that anyway? And the answer to that is definitely no, because we don't know what's in a lot of those, um, especially some of the over-counter uh, medications. Uh, there's probably not very much active drug in a lot of them. And, we, you know, we don't want people leaping to conclusions before we've done the definitive study, which we, you know, we're trying to do as soon as we can so that we get this answer about cannabinoids. It, you know, it seems like a really appealing idea that you could just go and get yourself um, a cannabinoid preparation and take it and it would be really easy to treat your horrible aggressive brain tumour but actually we, we have we have very little evidence that that's really the case. When it comes to clinical trials there are multiple phases and this was just the first in many of them but Susan's team are not stopping there. While it might seem that they could just test Sativex with every different type of cancer, they want to understand it a little bit more. They want to really delve into how the drug works in people with glioblastoma on a much larger scale. Yeah, so we don't have any um, plans to, um, to look in other tumour types at the moment, but I think it might well be the case, particularly if we find that there's any uh, promise in this uh, treatment for patients with glioblastoma, uh, that other patients um, with different brain tumours, uh, you know, we would also want to explore whether the same uh, the same effects occur in those. We are in the process of um, planning a bigger study. Um, as I said, the study that we've recently reported was far too small uh, to be able to give us any confidence that we could answer the question whether this drug was useful in patients with recurrent glioblastoma. We need a much bigger study. We need a study that includes you know, um, hundreds of patients rather than 20-something patients. And we're in the process of planning that now. Uh, and so we hope that that study will be available for patients across the UK sometime in the next year or so. Thanks to the promising results seen in this, the world's first trial with Sativex to treat glioblastoma, 
They're now continuing their work with the next stage of the trial, which is known as Aristocrat, which hopes to recruit over 230 patients across the UK starting next year, 2022. This has been That Cancer Conversation. We were produced in Cancer Research UK's digital news team, and our music today came from Poddington Bear. To learn more about the trial, you can find a link to the University of Leeds page, along with various other reading in the show notes. To be the first to listen to our next episode, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.